นะโมทัสสะปะกวะตะวะระหะตะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะกวะตะวะระหะตะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะกวะตะวะระหะตะสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสามีอุดาคารามาพุทธะ who were like the foremost meditation masters in 
India and in that day. And he thought they might understand the Dhamma, which is difficult to understand, but he thought they were suitable. But then using his special knowledge, he realized they'd already passed away. So then he thought of the Panchawagi, the five students who were staying in the deer park, <clears throat> and he thought maybe he'd travel to see them, to teach them the Dhamma. But on the way, he met one man, a Brahmin called Upaka, who recognized that something special about the Buddha, because when he encountered him on the road, he saw the, the aura and the bright and very peaceful countenance of the Buddha and thought, mm, this must be someone special. So he asked him, who are you? And the Buddha said, I am a self-enlightened Buddha, completely enlightened, self-enlightened. And in those days in India, if you were to be a meditation master or a spiritual teacher, usually you had to have your own teacher who you could quote and point to, your guru, as the norms. The Buddha said, I'm self-enlightened, no one is my teacher, because he was the first who penetrated the Four Noble Truths. So they say perhaps that put the Brahmin off. You don't have a teacher, you can't be worth much. So off he went. So he'd met the Buddha, but he wasn't impressed enough with the Buddha to want to follow him or listen to him more. So he went away. So when the Buddha went to the deer park, uh, Isipatana, Mirigadayawan, and taught the five, his five, the five ascetics, his first students. He explained a lot more than he had to the Brahmin Upaka. So he explained the Four Noble Truths in more detail as we've just chanted. So not everybody meeting the Buddha became enlightened. It depends on our Bharami. And Bharami really is developed through practice, which is why we come to practice meditation and maybe even do it for a whole night. And Ajahn Chah used to encourage this. And our natural reaction or first thought might think, we might think, why bother meditating for a whole night? You're bound to be tired and sleepy for part of the time mind won't be very concentrated, not likely to realize any real Dhamma. You might think like that. But over the years for myself practicing this and for many other monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, people have found it can be a very useful practice for bringing up effort in the practice, developing patience, developing mindfulness, developing energy to the point where maybe sometimes people find they have liberating experiences and they have insight arise and they have some peace, some understanding arise, even though they're also dealing with sleepiness and painful knees and all the other things. There's a famous story Lumpur Samedo tells 
about when he was first with Ajahn Chah in the very early days. This is maybe 50 years ago now. And they practiced this all night sitting and meditation at Wobbapong. And he didn't particularly like that practice. He said when he first went there, he thought it wasn't worthwhile. He thought maybe better to have a rest and then do some more meditation the next day. It's a very normal way of thinking about it. But the tradition was when the teacher's teaching, when Lumpo Cha's teaching, you don't run away and disappear and go and have a, a nap. <laughs> you stay. And Lumpo Cha was a very energetic teacher, very strong mentally. And he could teach all night sometimes. And that meant the monks had to sit and the lay people sat and listened. You didn't sneak away. And then Lumpur Samedo said there's one time when a good friend, an old friend of Lumpur Cha came to visit Lumpur Cha Lui, who the Lumpur Cha had practiced with in his youth and they're very close. So this old monk came to visit and it's not very often that he would visit. So they had a few things to talk about to catch up. So the monks were all sitting there out of respect, they paid respects to Lumpur Chalui and Lumpur Cha and Lumpur Chalui started talking about old times and this and that. And all the other monks just had to quietly meditate. And Lumpur Samedo says at first he thought maybe it'd just be for half an hour or an hour, chit chat and then everyone will break and go, go off their separate ways. But they kept on talking and chit-chatting for one hour, two hours, three hours. And so Lumpur Samedo says at first he got really angry, he was boiling up inside. Why should we have to sit while these two old monks natter and talk about things that aren't particularly valuable or useful for the practice? Why do we have to do this? The stubbornness of the mind came up. <clears throat> Once in a while, Lumpur, Samedo, uh, Lumpur Cha would glance, look across at Lumpur Samedo, see how he was doing. He wouldn't say anything to him, but he'd just look at him. And Lumpur Samedo was sitting there, but inside, not very happy. Angry thoughts, perhaps. Then Ajahn Cha would carry on talking another hour, two hours. So Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho was sitting there and he's working with the pain in his knees and feeling tired and then the feeling that it really wasn't worth doing this. A lot of resistance in his mind, mental kilesa coming up. But he just kept going with it because he obviously had the faith and the effort to do that. He kept practicing and once in a while Ajahn Chah would look at him then Lumpur Samedo says maybe at 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning he had a breakthrough where he'd been with his own cravings and attachments for so long, so many hours complaining, arguing in his mind. He got fed up with his own attachments and craving and decided, I don't care anymore. However long Ajahn Chah will make us sit here, I'll just sit and practice. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to want anything else than this. I'll just keep going. 
they had this breakthrough and he said his whole kind of dark, angry state of mind just disappeared at that moment. And his mind became very bright, peaceful, happy. And he said he felt like he could just sit indefinitely the rest of the night or the rest of the next day. It wouldn't matter. He's so peaceful. He's not bothered about any more pain or discomfort or anything. And he said it was a very valuable early lesson for him in his monk's practice because he found he could, by practicing, bringing up effort, mindfulness, he could let go of so much just in one night. And then the kind of punchline or the funny part of the story is he said as soon as he had this breakthrough and his mind became peaceful and all the suffering had gone and he thought I'll just follow Ajahn Chah as long as he sits here I'm going to sit here I don't mind and he said Ajahn Chah looked across him at him just after this experience and as if seemed to know that he was now peaceful and then Ajahn Chah said oh it's late let's stop And so everyone departed. So sometimes it's like that. You just get to the, your very breaking point. You stick with it. But then it's the end of the session. That's all right. Sometimes you have your insight early on, sometimes late. Or sometimes it might not come that night. Maybe it'll come another week later or a month later. Who knows? Our mind is not always easy to control or predict. The important thing is that we are practicing. We put effort into our practice and then we'll start to understand our mind better. Because these Four Noble Truths, as Ajahn Chah used to point out, you, you, you learn them first, you chant them, you read them, you hear some explanation some talk, but that's just on the outside. They're really something you have to make your own. You have to get to own these Four Noble Truths, meaning to really understand them inside your heart, inside your mind, to understand what is suffering, its cause, to let go of the cause, to experience the cessation of suffering. And you do that by developing the path of practice, the Eightfold Path. All of this you're developing in your heart, in your mind, through the practice. Obviously we practice on the outside as well, the way we relate to the world. But these Four Noble Truths are penetrated internally through our experience. And it's actually knowing and seeing the Four Noble Truths that brings us peace and the end of suffering. And that first man, Upaka, who met the Buddha after his enlightenment, he asked the Buddha, who are you? And the Buddha says, I'm the Buddha. And the word Buddha in Pali means the awakened one. So what's the Buddha awakened to, or awakened up to? It's the Four Noble Truths. He's realized them all woken up from his sleep, his deluded sleep. Now, when we haven't practiced much yet, it's because we're still, we're still caught into delusion. We haven't woken up to the truth yet. 
and that's why we still suffer in our life, why we still experience fear and worry and greed and anger and all the different kinds of stress and suffering. It's because we haven't yet seen them as noble truths. We're still caught up into them. So we have to learn how to practice, practice this Eightfold Path in our daily lives. And so all the teachings of the Buddha are giving us examples and explanation of how to do that. And then we have to apply it, put it into practice. These Lumpur Chai used to say the four, uh, the eight factors of the path, even though we talk about you know, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We talk about them as eight different things. They're all parts of one whole. So when they're developed in our heart, they become complete. They complete a whole or a, like a, a circle within our heart. All the different parts of that circle are complete. It's not like one thing leads to another, like you have some samaditi and then you go on and practice right thought and then right livelihood, right effort and so on. You're developing them all together, but maybe they haven't yet gathered together, they're not complete yet. So we have to learn how to practice in an ongoing way to develop all aspects of the path. Ajahn Chah used to say, right view, samaditi is probably the most important part because that's your, the beginning point. We, we get right view by listening to the Dhamma, reading it, listening and then thinking about it. So it, we start to train the way we think and the way we look at the world using right view and developing right view. And the heart of that, say on the ordinary level, is your understanding about karma. Everything we think intentionally affects us. If we have thoughts rooted in greed, anger, delusion, we, it brings us a feeling of suffering, agitation, discontent. If our thoughts are rooted in non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion, brings us clarity, contentment, peace in the mind. So good and bad karma is the very starting point of right view, understanding karma first in the mind and then as it comes out in our speech, our actions. The whole of the path begins at this point, seeing that it's worthwhile, it's valuable to practice. It does have an effect when you develop the path, it brings you good things. We all want to be happy, we all want to be, have a peaceful mind, have a sense of well-being in our life. We have to develop the causes for that through our practice, good karma. Develop these inner qualities which we call Arya Sapa, our spiritual wealth. When you're looking at karma, you can see when somebody becomes spiritually wealthy or rich, it's because they're developing the Eightfold Path. The right view, right livelihood, 
right action, right speech, right mindfulness and so on. These are qualities that enrich our mind, make our mind better, improve our mind. If we go in the opposite direction, we let our mind follow its ways of greed, anger, hatred, jealousy, fear, worry. These like take away our spiritual wealth. So we become poorer. That's something, just that much something we should think about in our lives because the way the world is now, it's a very it's a materialistic kind of world we live in. It's consumer society, so we're always thinking about getting more, having more wealth, thinking that will make us happy so we can have more property, more experiences, more freedom to do things because we've got more money and so on. But you can't help but notice when you follow greed, and that tends to be, if, we don't, if we're not looking after our minds, when we follow our greed, it doesn't make us more happy as people. It tends to make us more discontent, or as the Buddha would say, poorer inside. So on the outside, we're trying to get richer, but on the inside, if we're following greed, we tend to become poorer. We have this feeling that we've never got enough, never satisfied, never content. So that's why, you know, as you develop right view and develop this understanding of karma, you see the value of developing generosity as a starting point in our practice, in the practice of dana, because it makes you richer inside even though on the outside you actually may be sharing what you have, giving to others, giving material things away or supporting others in different ways, giving forgiveness, giving time, giving energy, giving knowledge to others, all the different ways we, support, we practice generosity. On the outside you might say we're actually getting poorer when we practice generosity because we give things away but on the inside we get richer that's a big you might, for many people that's a big turning point in their spiritual practice when they start to realize they actually are better off when they develop generosity kindness because these qualities have a very good effect on our heart building on from that then the Buddha talked about inner wealth coming from the practice of sila, your virtue, where you're living in a way or developing your lifestyle and certain values and lifestyle in a way that you value not harming other people through your speech, through your actions, or even other beings, other animals, creatures. It's even harder to practice than dana. It's harder to restrain our more aggressive, selfish tendencies in daily life. Probably hardest of all is keep our mouth <laughs> within the bounds of five precepts and not to harm others through our speech, to their face or behind their back. But this is something that 
you know, we have, as we develop right view and develop this understanding of karma, cause and result, we can start to see you know, our actions and our speech affect our happiness. It's another part of the path. We have to learn to put effort into being careful what we say, what we do, because it comes back on us, maybe over and over again. Some kinds of karma last with us for a whole lifetime, causes problems, suffering, and so on, cause suffering for others as well. But when we understand this point, then we get the effort up and the motivation to keep the precepts, to be more restrained, more careful in our speech, our actions. This lays the foundation for maybe the hardest part of the path is the development of the mind through meditation. But you notice when the Buddha talked about meditation, he began that um, explanation of developing the mind, training the mind with the practice of right effort, samawayama. Something we often overlook because we go on meditation courses and we learn about satipatthana and want to develop samadhi and jhana. Actually the Buddha began that practice and talking about that practice with the practice of samawayama, right effort. That's the effort to a avoid or prevent unwholesome states of mind, negative states of mind that haven't arisen yet. It's the effort to prevent them from arising. Or if they have arisen, the effort to abandon them quickly. And then the effort to bring up wholesome, skillful states of mind that haven't arisen yet, the effort to bring them up and the effort to maintain, develop, cultivate further those wholesome states that have arisen. This is the beginning of, you might say, meditation practice. That's what we're doing tonight. You, know, you come to a practice meditation, chanting, and you have to put aside thoughts of laziness or thoughts of Sensuality, you might think, oh, I'll just stay at home, watch TV, <laughs> listen to music, have some nice food or something like that. You have to put those thoughts aside, don't you? That's right effort. You have to bring up the thought of making the effort, putting forth effort, come here, sit quietly, put effort into meditation, putting effort into bringing up mindfulness which is the second part of the, the training of the mind. There's right effort and then right mindfulness, samasati. The Buddha encouraged us to practice samasati to bring our mind literally closer to the truth. In one way they translate satipatthana, the four focuses of mindfulness. You're learning to put our mind close to the truth, the truth of the body, become more mindful, more aware of the body, feelings, the mind itself, so the mind watching or focusing on the mind itself, and then the fourth is Dhamma, the objects of mind. We're learning to develop that mindfulness to bring our mind to closely observe the way things are, 
way this body is, the way the mind is, and particularly how suffering arises. When we attach to this body as me, mine, myself, it can bring us a lot of suffering because the body is not always healthy, feeling good, it's not doesn't stay young forever, and so on. The body brings us a lot of painful feelings, discomfort, dissatisfaction with the way it looks, the way it feels, and so on with the mind. Feelings, thoughts, often very unhappy with the way we feel, the way we're thinking about things. So we're starting to look more closely at the nature of the body, we call rupa, and the mind, nama. But with the practice of mindfulness, we're learning to see these things as they are, without that sense of grasping at them as self. They're not grasping at the body as self, but seeing the body more as just a body, collection of physical elements. See feeling as just feeling, a painful feeling, pleasant feeling, neutral feeling. But feeling is just feeling. Having enough mindfulness to do that, to see that. This is where we start to free our mind from suffering. To see the mind itself as just the mind. And not always grasping at every mental state, every thought, you know, good or bad, as, as a self, as me, mind, myself. But see the mind more as like a vessel and different mental states arising and ceasing into it. And the Dhamma, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, understanding the process, how suffering arises, how negative mind states and attachment arises, and how to abandon them, how to let go of them, how liberation and freedom from suffering arises in our mind through the practice. When we practice mindfulness regularly, we might start to experience more states of samadhi, the last part of the noble path. States of calm, sometimes just very briefly, sometimes more deeply for longer periods. And those states of calm are important because they give the mind a good lesson to see that we can let go of our suffering if only temporarily. And when you meditate and you experience some peace, you remember it because it feels good when you've let go of your worries or your attachments. You're not worried about pain and not concerned about pain and different feelings in your body. You let go of all your worries about work and money and all the different issues that normally fill your mind. If you're meditating and you develop some samadhi, you let go of all of them. This is a very important experience for us because it gives us an insight, brings the mind much closer to Nibbāna, the very goal of our practice. When you have some states of calm, peace, you know, the sense of self, the attachment to the sense of self disappears. What we normally identify with disappears and the mind becomes very peaceful, very, we say very empty empty of self, empty of suffering. We're not angry, we're not worried, we're not greedy. When we experience that through our practice, even if it's only a few moments, we feel very good. And it gives us like 
a foundation from which to come back and reflect and look at our other experience when greed does arise we can see the suffering of it if we've had some experience of the mind of non-greed when anger arises we can see it's suffering because we know what non-anger is like and even very subtle delusions when they arise if we've experienced a mind where we've set aside delusions we understand them better as suffering Lumpur Cha used to say when you experience all these factors of the path coming up together even if only briefly your mind has this ability to see through its normal attachments attachment to what we call samuti satcha the conventional reality so your normal thoughts of you know, who you are where you've come from in your life where you're going all the hopes and fears all separate and disappear at that time when your mind is peaceful and mindfulness is strong you don't even think I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm young, old all the normal kind of ways of thinking separate and pass away at that moment so we can see a little bit more deeply into reality so he used to give the example say you're meditating and you become very mindful you just contemplate something very ordinary like this hall, this Dhamma hall we're sitting in now like at the moment it's full of people so we might say oh it's very full if you come on Katina day it's completely full no space left so you might say oh it's completely full on a Katina day today it's just average maybe you come tomorrow nobody's here at all the hall will seem empty that feeling the, the hall is full it's empty you know, these are just experiences that we we label in our mind the whole remains just the whole you know, if it's full maybe you have one reaction if it's empty you have another reaction but these are what our mind adds on to things this is the conventional reality we attach to that we normally are not seeing we label everything and that's where our suffering comes from as you get liking, disliking, wanting, not wanting coming from that. Or even more extreme example, Lumpur Cha used to talk about is the guy who goes to the marketplace and he buys a, a bedpan. You know, one of those old pots that you used to have for when you're in the middle of the night, you need to go to the toilet, you don't want to go out of your room, so you just urinate in this urine or a little pot chamber pot they'd call them the guy buys one of those but he goes home it's brand new it's clean and he cooks his rice in it and eats his rice out of it his friends come round and they say wow why are you eating rice in a chamber pot you, that's what we normally piss in <laughs> why are you eating rice out of it he said well it's clean it's quite useful, it's quite big, I can put my rice in it. But, you know, the perception of it being a chamber pot sticks, doesn't it? The label sticks in the mind, so you probably, some people wouldn't even want to eat their rice out of that. Even though it's perfectly clean, it's made of 
ceramic, it's got clay and enamel, but it's perfectly clean, brand new. You can eat out of it, but just the thought, oh, it's a chamber pot. Usually we put urine in that. I can't eat out of that. That comes up, doesn't it? That's what we mean conventional reality, where the mind attaches to the perception, the label that it puts onto something. The pot itself doesn't know whether it's an, a, a rice pot or a urinal pot. It doesn't know, does it? It's just a pot, it's just a clay, clay vessel. And this is what we do in our life. We constantly get caught, entangled in our perceptions, our attachments, gives rise to views, oh, I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I want, don't want that. That's where our suffering comes from. That's where the sense of self arises. It arises with all our sense contact. You see something, you say, oh, I see this. If it agrees with you, it's like, oh, I like that. Maybe you see flowers, oh, I like flowers. Or maybe you say, I don't like that particular color or that kind of flower. So you, you might have a reaction, I don't like that. Or you do like that. That's just seeing. It's just eyes, the mind, color, shapes. And you have some, then you start to label it and you attach and then you get wanting and not wanting arising. It happens with all our senses. We have seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. All the time this sense of self arises, I like this, I don't want that. On and on it goes, and that's why we suffer. But when you meditate, develop some mindfulness and some peace and clarity, then you can start to see through that. And this is seeing the Four Noble Truths in practice. You see, if I attach, I suffer. If I can have enough mindfulness, I just know this experience. I'm just seeing, I'm just hearing, tasting. Maybe there's pleasant feeling arising, unpleasant feeling arising, but none of this is self. These are all just experiences of nature that arise according to their own causes and then they pass away. If you have enough mindfulness and insight to see that, then you're seeing the Four Noble Truths in practice and your mind goes quiet. That's the point of it, you know, the, with insight into the Four Noble Truths, as we just chanted, you know, vision arose, knowledge arose, vision arose, light arose. As the mind becomes brighter and the insight is there, it feels peaceful, feels happy by seeing, understanding the Four Noble Truths. So that's the point of our practice. That's why we're practicing. That's what we're aiming towards. And tonight is a, a night we can dedicate to practicing to realize the Four Noble Truths. Just like those first five monks in Buddhism, Anya Kundanya was the first. They practiced like this probably many times, meditated, listened to the Buddha, reflected on the Dhamma, Eventually they had their insight, their mind became very bright, free from suffering. So I'll leave you with these reflections for now and uh, in a moment we'll do the circumambulation. <laughs>